Over the past few months, I've heard a lot about revivals that have been popping up all over the place, and it uh, really piqued my interest. And I wanted to delve deeper into it and uh, kind of get to what the heart of revival is. So the first step I took, which is usually what I take, is to go straight to the dictionary. Because to me, if you don't understand the definition of the word, then it's really hard to know exactly what you're talking about. So when I looked up the definition of revival within the Oxford Dictionary, it came up as a noun with five different definitions. The first one being improvement in condition or strength of something. Two was an instance of something becoming popular, active, or important again. Three, a new production of an old play or similar work. Four was a reawakening of religious fervor, especially by means of a series of evangel evangelical meetings. Five, which is my favorite, is a restoration to bodily or mental vigor, to life or consciousness, or to sporting success. I really like the uh, fifth definition because to me, our body and our mind and our life and our consciousness, those are... Those are tangible things that we can evaluate within ourselves. And what we think controls a lot of our body and what we do. And it controls part of our health, too. Because, like, unresolved stress, that causes cortisone levels to come up in your body. And that affects your whole body there. Kind of affects your pancreas and can lead to high blood pressure and and diabetes and other things like that, but that's a whole different story. So it led me to look at the elements of revival. And four elements really came to me. A heart of repentance, a heart that seeks after the Lord, expectation of the Lord to move, and a heart that cries out in prayer. Jonathan Edwards, who was a revivalist preacher from uh, colonial America about the 1730s, was teaching that when revival comes, it is a God-chosen activity, not a man-chosen enterprise, prompted by God's good pleasure to reveal himself through the gospel in a special way to sinful people. That means that just because we want to see it, it cannot, we cannot make it happen by ourselves. But one thing that we can do is we can cry out to the Lord, we can cry out for revival of our families, of our community, our job sites, our region, our nation, we can cry out to the Lord. So to the first element, a heart of repentance. Everywhere you look in the Bible, you find the theme of repentance, followed shortly by being made whole. You look at the story of Samson and how he fell into sin, and in the end he repented and took out all of Israel's enemies. Ultimately he wound up dying, but he did repent and he did regain his strength, and he finished the job there. We can look to King David, and when he went astray, he fell down on his face and repented, returning back to the Lord always. God himself called David a man after his own heart, not because David was perfect, but in his willingness to humble himself before the Lord and return to seeking the Lord's face. That is one thing that has always stood out to me as I've studied on uh, King David was all the ways that he messed up. Like He stole a man's wife and then killed the man so that he could keep her. I mean, he did all sorts of things, but one of the things that he did the most 
was when he recognized and admitted, keyword admitted, that he messed up, he quickly ran back to the Lord and cried out in repentance and returned back to seeking the Lord. We move forward to John the Baptist, who was found out in the desert yelling, Prepare yourself and make the way for the Lord, followed by repent and be baptized. Turn to Luke chapter 15. All throughout Jesus' physical ministry, he told the masses to repent, that he came for the repentance of sins, and that through repentance (coughs) came healing and life. It was a big deal, and it still is a big deal. Something to have joy and celebration about. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. But the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He told them this parable, saying, What man among you have a hundred sheep, and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Likewise, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous men who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, losing one, does not light a candle and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Likewise, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, Just backtracking a little bit, the uh, one thing about the Pharisees that... uh, they kind of have a bad rap. Uh, usually we think of them as uh, the bad church people. But the fact of the matter is, is the Pharisees were a very unique type of people, very righteous and religious people. They uh, had to memorize the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and had to make a public vow to live a righteous lifestyle publicly and to abide by the Ten Commandments. So the fact that God, or the fact that Jesus was saying that heaven rejoices over one sinner, over the ninety-nine righteous men, that's that's kind of hitting hard at them, throwing it right right back at them. Now, Jesus followed up those parables with the parable of the lost son, which, in short, you had the son that uh, wanted to take his heritage prematurely which is a real slap in his dad's face. It's basically telling your dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money. And then taking it, he took it and spent it all, blew it all, and came back. And his dad rejoiced when he came back. His brother was upset because his brother had been the good one. He stuck around the entire time and did exactly what he was supposed to do. But his dad was rejoicing over his brother that took his heritage prematurely and splint and just blew it all many times when jesus healed someone he followed up by telling them to go and send no more or in other words repent and go on repentance is always the first step in anything that we do 
We look to communion, where Paul says to examine our hearts before we take it. And every time we see a mighty move in the Bible, it's always followed by repentance. Numerous times throughout the Bible, we hear the words, repent and be made whole. Unrepentance is a major spiritual blockade and one of the most effective tools that the enemy has. When he comes by and says, you remember this? This is why God isn't moving in your life or in your situation. Why you're not seeing that healing? Why you're not seeing that prayer answered? You're guilty and dirty, and so God doesn't love you anymore. And I'm here to tell you that the devil is a liar on that. That he does love us. Now, just because when we mess up, we have a tendency to not run back to the Lord because it's uncomfortable. When you've done somebody wrong, you intentionally kind of avoid them because it feels awkward at first. But the first thing that we need to do is run straight back to the Lord when we recognize that we've messed up. A repented heart seeks out the Lord. And that's the second element of there, a heart that seeks after the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But if from there you will seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Seeking the Lord is not as hard as the enemy wants us to believe. It can be something as easy as just asking the Lord to forgive us, or asking him to guide us. It reminds me of a story my youth pastor was always talking about from a church he worked at in Kentucky where he had one student that answered every single question with pray and read the Bible. And that wasn't exactly the answer that uh, the youth pastor was looking for. And yes, the student might have been facetious. I don't know. I don't know the guy. But I think he might have been onto something whether he realized it or not. The first thing that we need to do when we're seeking out the Lord is pray and read the Bible. We talk to the Lord through prayer, and His primary means of talking to us is through His Word, through His Scripture. So that's two of the most important things that we can do in life, is to pray and get into the Word. Because the more we get into the Word, the more it penetrates into our mind, the more Things in life trigger up the memory of that Bible verse. We see something, then we remember, oh, yes, the Bible says this on that. So it is highly important for us to get into the Word and continuously pray to God. Psalms 105, 4-5 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continuously. Remember his marvelous, marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments from his mouth. First, we have got to seek the Lord in all that we do. We read over this verse and it reminds us to seek him for our strength. It reminds us to remember all that he has done. The verse before tells us to seek him with all of our heart and all of our soul. This is much deeper than saying, I prayed and I read a devotional today. No, this is begging the Lord to change how we think, inviting him into our everyday life and asking him to change what doesn't fit his will. When God takes captive of our thought life, our actions change, our priorities change, our ability to love change, our work drive changes, everything in our life changes for the better. 
Because what we think about eventually becomes what we do. What we think about eventually becomes how we talk to people. How we talk to ourselves. A lot of things start out in the noggin up here first before they're ever manifested out beyond the mind. And the better our thought life is, the better our reactions are before we have time to think about what we're about to say. The next element is an expectant heart. Matthew 9, 27 through 29 says, As Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done for you. This is real talk here. Do you expect God to do what he says? Do you expect God to move in your life and have mercy on your life? It's easy to say yes right here and now, but to ask yourself this later on privately, do you expect the Lord to do this? And if you find the answer as of no, ask yourself why. Because sometimes we just get a little bit off track and sometimes we got to be real with ourselves. Then ask the Lord to reveal himself in a mighty way in your life. The Lord will meet you there. He will do it. The Israelites literally saw the Lord split a body of water, allowing them to pass through and then swallowed up the entire army. They also literally ate bread that came from the ground daily. But they also forgot how strongly the Lord moves. Even though they had witnessed so many things, they quickly forgot. And they quickly went about focusing on the next big problem, the next wave that they're looking at. They sent spies to the promised land and got scared because they found a bunch of guys built like me and some even bigger. They were all over the place. But they forgot how mighty and powerful their God was. They got scared because they were looking at the size of the guys, not the size of their God. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be starting in verse 14. Verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Then Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, saying, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, 
and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And this is verse 21. It may not be in every translation. There's some that have uh, taken it out. It says, But this kind does not go out except for by prayer and fasting. Verse 21 is very, very important. I'll get to that here in a second. If I'm being honest, this passage is an act of obedience for me. There have been things that I've asked the Lord to do for years and I haven't seen, but I still fully believe and faithfully believe that I will see it happen, even if it may not be as I thought or wanted it to be. One of the hardest tactics from the enemy is the question of, will God really do that? And unfortunately, this passage has been misused by in the past, and even nowadays, I'm sure, by church people telling others who are mourning that it's because of their lack of faith that XYZ didn't happen. very good friend of mine, when he was a young man, his father passed away of cancer. And to have somebody tell him his father died because he didn't have enough faith, that's wrong. That's completely missing the point here. I don't think Jesus was really chastising the disciples, even though it looks like that on surface value looking through this passage. I think a lot of what this is is Jesus going, guys, I don't have much time left with you. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be with you. You've got to get this. You've got to get the concept of faith. And sometimes we can be very faithful and we can beg the Lord for things and have faith that he's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. And he is. But sometimes the results are not what we are expecting to see. I've had loved ones in the past where I was praying really hard that they would be that they would survive, that they would live and just that they mostly that they would just be healed, completely healed. And they wound up dying. And it took me some time to really come to grasp with this and start to realize that in all reality if they had lived and survived through the ICU, they were going to be stuck for the rest of their lives, more than likely, on a vent, living in a facility, instead of dancing at the feet of the Father. I was asking for complete healing, expecting them to still be physically here in the world with us, but in reality, they got complete healing. They'll never be sick again. They'll never be hurt again. They'll never know tears and pain again. No more health issues. They got healed. And it just took some time for me to understand and comprehend that concept. So the main takeaway from that passage that I want to see here is to be faithful that the Lord will move. Fully expect Him to move. But do not place him inside of a box and say that if the Lord doesn't move like this or like that, then he didn't move or he's not going to move. And sometimes the very thing that we need is that verse 21, that prayer and fasting. 
That's something that the modern church is really missing right now, I think, is the concept of fasting and the discipline of fasting. Both prayer and fasting do two key things. They make us focus solely on God. It is a conscious and cognitive choice to sustain from a normal life activity and give that time and energy to God. It's also a moment of self-discipline to honor God. Saying that I'm going to sustain from eating this particular type of food, be it meat. I'm not going to eat meat for three days. And during that time, I'm going to get before the Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that his will be done and that we will be effective in all that we do. I think fasting has lost its effectiveness with us because we haven't been doing it. I'm not going to lie. I suck at fasting. I'm a big boy. Fasting is not my first choice of uh, weaponry there. But I'm working on that. And it might be that I really need to start really working on that more frequently. In fact, I know I do. Moving on to Psalms 27, 13 through 14. It says, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be strong, and may your heart be stout. Wait on the Lord. See, it's easy to believe that the Lord will intercede at first, but when it's something that we must wait on, that's when it gets hard. We as humans hate to wait. Many folks find it hard to wait five minutes for a cheeseburger. You'll be standing there in the pickup line, and I guarantee you after some point in time, some bloke's going to turn around to you and look at you and say, and they want 15 bucks an hour for what? Nevertheless, the fact that they just shipped out $200 worth of uh, dollar cheeseburgers in the last hour, running their tails off, we hate to wait. But sometimes that's exactly what we need. We find that hindsight 2020. And I think that's why David wrote that may your heart be stout and be strong. It's really important. as a major prayer that our hearts will be strong and stout as we wait on the Lord. And to believe that we will see the goodness of the Lord here in the land of the living, not just in the future, not just with him for eternity, that we will still see his goodness right here today in the physical world. Psalms 5, 1 through 3 says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Listen to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, O Lord, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will direct my prayer to you, and I will watch expectantly. A lot of times crying out to the Lord and waiting on the Lord go hand in hand. Many times we find ourselves crying out to the Lord as we're waiting for him to move in a particular way. As we're waiting on that refuge to come, that help to come. So that leads to the next element of revival, which is a heart that cries out. Looking at Romans eight fourteen through 17, that says, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, 
These are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. See, God hears us when we cry out. He is with us, and his spirit bears witness with ours to that of our cries. But it is also important for us to remember what our identity in Christ means and who we are as his children. See, when my children were infants, they would cry out when they needed something. But they also expected that cry to be heard and action to be taken, especially the younger of the two. Our Father loves to hear our voices, and He listens intently to our cries. Just like an earthly father deciphering which cry he just heard. Is that the cry for hunger to which He feeds us? Is that the cry of need to which He gives us comfort? Or is that the cry for something else in which the child must learn patience and how to find comfort in their waiting? Every parent finds a moment in that child's life where they must delay answering that cry in order that the child may learn to grow. If the child is picked up every time he wishes to be moved, he will be delayed in learning how to crawl. And if delayed in crawling, he delays in walking. And if he delays in walking, then he is unable to successfully move from one point to the other without assistance. And sometimes we find ourselves crying out to God for a move, yet he is telling us, I have equipped you. I have given you power and authority. I have gifted you. Walk and I will guide your steps. Sometimes that answer to your cry is being led to the rock of God, to his refuge, his arms that are open wide. Just like when my children were learning how to walk, I didn't sit there and hold their hand the entire time. At some point, I had to get out in front of them and say, come to me, walk. And they had to learn how to walk unassistedly on their own. If somebody held their hand the entire time, they never would be able to walk independently within the strength that has been given them. Psalm 61, 1-5 says, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart faints, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me and a strong tower for my enemy. I will abide in your tent forever. I will seek refuge in the coverage of your wings. Salah for you, O God have heard my vows, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. It's good stuff. Excuse me. So while I was searching on what revival looks like, I know what I had experienced in life, but I also wanted a better understanding, a better grasp. And I came across this article that Northwest University put out um, on revival, and they made a list of 12 things that have been observed throughout church history. 
They also used Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 47, as a biblical guide for these observations. It's called the Twelve Signs of Revival. They wrote the primordial, primordial revival of Acts 2, 36-47 illustrates 12 consistent signs of revival that have characterized spiritual renewal over the course of church history. Starting in verse 36. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were stung in the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Fear came to every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their property and goods and distributed them all to all, according to their need, and continually daily with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It says, note the signs of revival in this passage. Point one, or observation one, was an emphasis on Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter preached to the crowd gathered at Pentecost about Jesus Christ. Crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the dead as Lord and Messiah. When revival comes, Jesus becomes the top priority for Christians. Observation number two was repentance. Uh, found, uh, verse 37 and 38. In revival, people experience conviction for their sins and repent and change their lifestyles. They not only walk away from the patterns of sin, but they turn their attention away from petty entertainments to spend more time in pursuit of God. I know a lot about petty entertainments. It's easily it's easy to get distracted. No, uh, observation three, a passion for prayer. Revival creates in people a new desire to pray, worship, and meditate on God. Sometimes, even in sleep, the prayers continue as God clears away our distractions and speaks to us in dreams. Observation number four was a hunger for the word. That's also with uh, verse 42. Three and four are, are verse 42. When revival comes, people want more of the scriptures, more personal reading and study and more exposure to the preaching and teaching. Observation number five, a burden for the lost. From verse 40, because of the conviction of sin that comes with revival, people realize that others are lost because they are more aware of their own sin and their lostness without Jesus. 
In revival, we can no longer be content to let people live without being confronted with the love of Christ. Observation 6 was increase in salvations. Find that in verse 41 and 47. Along with the new burden for souls comes a marked increase in salvations and new converts. Observation 7, a surge in the callings to ministry and missions. That's actually from Acts 4.20 with their uh, list. During revival, people sense God's calling to the gospel service. Whether in a vocational ministry or in greater consecration or their daily work life and what others would see as a secular setting. Observation 8 was the manifested presence of God, verses 40 and 43. God is always present, but in revival, God's presence becomes more obvious among us. Whether in the conviction of sin, healings and signs and wonders, or the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Observation number 9, greater generosity towards the work of God. Church offerings and other manifestations of personal giving to the work of God greatly increased during revival. Observation number 10 was a greater frequency of corporate gatherings for worship and prayer in the Word, from verse 46. Not only do the number of church activities increase, but Christians begin to meet in homes, at restaurants, and other venues to spend time together to share how God is working in their lives that greater community thing. Observation number 11 was increased fellowship amongst Christians, also from verse 46. In revival, God's people experience greater love for one another that draws them together frequently and attracts unbelievers to their community. And observation number 12, favor with the community, from verse 47. While the early Christians saw favor with all the people, that did not include the Sanhedrin and a lot of the Jewish leaders, who immediately began to persecute them. We find that in Acts 4.1. Both favor and opposition arise when revival begins. Mockers will always arise when revival occurs, and the opposition from people in power also increases. But the joy of God's favor trumps any form of persecution or opposition. So after saying all this mouthful, and it is a mouthful. At least the question is, is revival important? Absolutely. But I do not want us to seek only special corporate worship events for revival. True revival starts in our hearts. It is a daily lifestyle and when we find ourselves going with the flow and our spiritual flames getting cool, we must quickly run to the Lord so that the heat of our flame can be revived and we can continuously burn brightly and hot for Him. We must live a daily life of revival. Seeking out the Lord, crying out to the Lord, having a heart of repentance, a heart to see people the way God sees them. We've got to be willing to live a life that is honoring to the Lord, to invite Him to intercede within our thought life and within our daily life so that our lives can be molded to what He wants and what He desires. Like Jesus prayed, both in the garden and in the Lord's Prayer, 
not my will, but your will be done. That's got to be our lifestyle. That is the lifestyle of revival, having our hearts on fire for the Lord and saying, not your will, but my will be done, and actually meaning it. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word, Father, and I just pray that anything that is not of you and not your word, that it would just fall to the wayside and out of memory, Father. But I ask that your word would just deeply penetrate into our hearts and minds and our souls. As we go throughout the day, that your word would manifest within our lives, that we would remember it, and that we would act upon it, Father. That we would boldly seek your face at all times with all situations. Give us the strength to follow you boldly. Let our hearts continuously burn brightly for you, that all may see your glory in us, Father. I just thank you and praise you, Father. We love you. In your precious and holy name, amen.